if we want to do better than we're doing now, it's really about organizational change, system change, culture change, not tips and tricks for personal resilience. You know, we often say our goal is to uh, fix a broken work environment, not teach physicians to be better able to tolerate a broken work environment. Welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. In this episode, we interview Dr. Tate Shanafelt. Dr. Shanafelt is a Jeannie and Stuart Ritchie Professor of Medicine, Chief Wellness Officer, and Associate Dean at Stanford University School of Medicine. He is the co-author with one of our former guests, Dr. Steven Swenson, of Mayo Clinic Strategies to Reduce Burnout. He is credited for bringing physician burnout to the forefront of the healthcare discussion. He is a leader in the field of physician wellness and healthcare team efficiency. He has published numerous works in the field of physician well-being, and his studies in this area have been cited by CNN, USA Today, and the New York Times. We hope you enjoyed this episode where we talk about his book, Why Wellness Initiatives Often Fall Flat, and how we can build a positive work environment. Welcome to Leading the Rounds. Hey everyone, and welcome to this episode of Leading the Rounds. Caleb, I've had a really rough week. I don't know about you, but I'm really looking forward to this episode. Take my mind off of things. Me too as well. Busy day in the hospital and surgery right now. Yeah, it's our pleasure today. We have the Chief Wellness Officer at Stanford, Dr. Tate Shanafelt. Dr. Shanafelt, how are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for, thanks for having me today. Yeah, we're really excited about this. Um, we had the pleasure of interviewing your friend, Steve Swenson, last year. We were wondering how you guys knew each other. Steve and I worked together at uh, Mayo Clinic uh, in days gone by. Uh, when I was leading a lot of the wellness improvement efforts, Steve was... Uh, leading the uh, leadership development efforts at Mayo. And we collaborated on a number of projects over the years and uh, have developed a friendship and uh, a lot of collaborative uh, efforts in this space around clinician well-being. So one of the things that Peter and I had the privilege of receiving from Dr. Swanson was the book you guys wrote together, uh, Mayo Clinic Strategies to Wellness. And we wanted to start this interview by asking you uh, about the book, but then this year has been crazy for everybody because of the pandemic. And so I want you to take a pandemic focus on what you wrote in the book and think about what, how has the pandemic changed the ideas that you put down in writing in that book and what you think about wellness and physician leadership? Yeah, it's a great question. I think uh, certainly the pandemic has deepened all of our appreciation about the critical role uh, the central role that the well-being, uh, professional fulfillment, uh, purpose and work that healthcare professionals bring to their work being an essential uh, ingredient for them to be able to provide great care, compassionate care for their patients and communities in a sustainable way. I think, you know, some of the uh, core tenets of that book really building off research we've been doing for two decades now 
emphasize how the practice environment, the clinical uh, environment, the culture of our healthcare organizations is really the foundation for well-being and professional fulfillment in healthcare professionals. And so if we want to do better than we're doing now, it's really about organizational change, system change, culture change, not tips and tricks for personal resilience. You know, we often say our goal is to uh, fix a broken work environment, not teach physicians to be better able to tolerate a broken work environment. And so I think that um, certainly we've had a number of these uh, problems in our healthcare delivery system in our organizations that have led to high levels of uh, work-related uh, distress, occupational distress in physicians, other healthcare workers that predated the pandemic. But the pandemic's really been an acute on chronic stressor. And the severity of that and the exact ways it's impacted uh, physicians uh, varies a lot by specialty, region of the country, uh, hit different groups at different times, um, but has really affected all of us in, in some way or another. And I think when we think about what's different or how did the pandemic really maybe change, if we were writing that book today or when we do an updated version, you know, what additional chapters or, or themes would enter, uh, you know, the, I think the pandemic certainly uh, led a number of organizations to double down on some of the individual support resources they provided people because uh, although we would all love to redesign the workflow so your ORs turned around faster, Caleb, and you were waiting between cases a shorter amount of time and going home 45 minutes earlier. I mean, what's not to like about that? 45 more minutes more of personal time. But during the pandemic is not obviously the time to do a workflow redesign. And so there's been uh, an element during the pandemic that's just helping sustain people so they can get through and, and live to take on some of these bigger and more structural changes that are needed uh, a different day. So I think that the pandemic has really emphasized some of those individual support needs and particularly when home life was so disrupted, many of the things that maybe sustained you that you did outside of work, relationships, hobbies, exercise, nutrition, whatever it might be, it's been much harder. Um, also different demands on your time, people with kids having to try to be a great school teacher, uh, doing virtual school and a great physician at the same time. So I, I think the, the need to, how do we help with some of those things as an organization has never been more important. But I think it's also, again, if anything, just revealed the, the need for an organization structure and process to address these needs. You know, we've sort of made the point that organizations that had a leader in the, this domain and had a team and a structure were able to weather this better. So, you know, our own team at Stanford, we had to completely redeploy the focus of the WellMD Center's efforts uh, and what all of those individuals were doing over the last year. But because we had a team already in place and there was already a wellness leader that I could join the incident command hospital decision-making structure from day one of the pandemic and be bringing into those conversations the needs of the clinician and how this was affecting them and their concerns. 
and that we had a team to redeploy to some needs that wouldn't have been on any radar prior to the pandemic, but are the most acute thing now that we needed to try to, to fill a gap. We, we had a team in place. So I think in that sense, it, it illustrated just the importance of having an organizational commitment, a leadership structure, and teams to be able to, to meet this acute need that's different than what we dealt with before. But I think, you know, again, longer term, um, coming full circle, it, it is still about the system and practice environment. And I think perhaps more so than ever, as we uh, hopefully uh, come out and get further away from the acute phases of the pandemic, but physicians and other healthcare workers who have given their heart and soul and a lot of personal sacrifices for their communities over the last year and a half are going to more than ever expect their healthcare system to do better and, and to provide a better work and practice environment. Um, because I think we've recognized more so than ever the, the, the tremendous dedication, hard work, sacrifice these individuals make. Absolutely. Um, I was wondering, has the pandemic kind of shined a light on anything that as a system we may have been overlooking before the pandemic that, that you now realize needs to be addressed going forward? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a great question, Peter. I, I, I would say that maybe one dimension of it is just the sustainable uh, staffing and sustainable work expectations. And I think that probably in almost no scenario, even a, you know, a more ideal one than we were at the start of the pandemic, uh, would this not have been an earthquake for our healthcare system? Mm -hmm. But that said, you know, we had really no margin right? Uh, no margin in the system. Uh, you know, we often make the point that, you know, if you're ill today, you've got a pretty strong incentive to show up because if you don't, uh, the extra work just falls on Caleb, who was already overworked and going home late, right? We have no system thinking in our staffing. We don't, you know, build in redundancies, um, even though we know people are going to get ill. And over the last year and a half, where obviously our colleagues were sort of at the front line and many sadly came down with a COVID infection or other things, you know, we just didn't have any uh, redundancy. So people were who were already overworked just became more overworked, um, exhausted um, and depleted. And our system, you know, all the frailties of our system were exposed. And so I think if, if anything, you know, it should perhaps make us reflect on that. Most industries would never staff in that way, that the solution when we know people are going to be away is just that those who are left, who already are sort of at the margin, are absorbing it. I think it's hopefully emphasized that more so than ever, that we need to create structures and systems and processes that um, are ready for the unexpected and that are also um, able to be maintained when a portion of our colleagues are away and, and sick. You mentioned that you are part of a great team at Stanford. What were some of the things that you guys were able to implement over the past year or so to weather the storm, like you mentioned? Yeah. I, I, Kim, I'd say one of the things that I think the 
was most helpful that the team did um, was that from the outset, we sort of recognized that this was something different than we've ever dealt with before. And all the playbooks, you know, even though, you know, our team, a number of uh, colleagues, you know, have been studying this and developing organization interventions for 20 years now, that those solutions were solutions for problems of the past and that they weren't what was needed, um, you know, 11 months ago where we didn't have adequate PPE and there was so much uncertainty about what this meant. And we were obviously thinking about where are we going to have to redeploy people outside their area of specialty expertise. Um, and people were fearful about, I don't want to stay at home because I don't want to take this home to my wife or my kids. Um, the exhaustion, all of these things, uh, the moral distress, watching patients die alone and isolated and not able to have their loved ones be with them. So many things. And so I, I think that one of the best things that we did was right out of the gate, just said, we let's not pretend we have the answers. We need to be um, going directly and just having an immediate feedback channel of what do you need now? And to be able to have those channels, you know, updating every day, every two weeks, every week as the needs changed. And so we created immediately out of the gate, a series of listening sessions, we called them. Uh, we had 37 in those early months uh, of basically small groups of physicians, nurses, APPs, residents, fellows, where we would just ask those questions of what is it that you're struggling with now? What's your biggest concern? What do you need from the organization now? Whether it be information, resources, support, and then using that information to both inform all of the hospital and school leadership at the incident command, and then to identify which resources are most acute that we need to bring. And, and they were some of those things, right? It was providing free hotels around the medical center so that people who were fearful about going home didn't have to. It was providing some free meals. It was providing meals sometimes for them and sometimes for their family at home, um, providing some of the emotional support resources that that uh, individuals needed, as well as just some of the informational, the educational sessions of, um, you know, dealing with whatever it might be, sleep deprivation or um, helping your kids deal with the uncertainty and the, uh, you know, the dynamic change in their world uh, and being able to create sessions for, for sort of these acute questions and needs. Um, and then even too, you know, people very fearful about, okay, I'm willing to show up, but I'm putting myself in harm's way. And if I go out uh, because I've acquired the, you know, COVID infection, um, are you going to take care of me? Are you going to take care of my family? And so we had a very robust system uh, that we developed for that, right? A free lodging for the individual and or their family, food, support, uh, longitudinal coaching and regular check-ins with them at home, longitudinal, you know, mental health support if they needed it. Um, and just being on call for what does your family need, right? So that we were able to really uh, stand up a robust system to support our colleagues who did have to go on quarantine, um, both emotionally, but also just with tangible needs. Um, so a, a number of other things that sort of stood up along the way, but a, a num I think perhaps the underlying theme of it was um, listening and just being dynamic and our ability to respond to the new needs that, you know, emerged 
and changed so rapidly over those first several months of what people uh, really need help with. Childcare, um, we were fortunate at Stanford to be able to provide over those first uh, four or five months, a very robust uh, uh, support uh, for uh, faculty and, and staff uh, who had children home um, from school or, or their own uh, daycare centers weren't available and, and how are we gonna help that needs so they could come and care for our patients and community. I imagine a lot of these initiatives cost money and cost a decent amount of money. And I think the argument against them for maybe some healthcare um, organizations is that, you know, profit margins are really low. There's no funding for this. Do you think that's a valid excuse for most healthcare organizations? Or do you believe it's more, uh, decision of prioritizing wellness and prioritizing this within that budget? It's a great question. And I'll maybe sort of answer it in two parts. I, I think the first is that I think we sometimes get hung up on the fact uh, or the misconception that everything is going to have a big sticker price. And so, you know, for example, creating these, um, listening sessions and feedback channels and being able to keep the all the decision makers who are making decisions day by day acutely aware of the biggest needs and concerns of their healthcare workers. That's really not that expensive, right? And to the extent I think we are aware of and considering um, those concerns and needs as part of all of the other operational things we do, I'm actually not sure it costs us anything because it certainly saves us from some missteps or mistakes that are going to probably take more time and energy from leaders than had we listened to our people uh, more, uh, more openly on the front end. And I think there also are a, a number of elements that are just around helping our leaders be more effective. Um, you know, this was obviously a time, especially the early days where there was so much fear and uncertainty for very visible leadership. And I think, you know, in some of our sessions, we you know, truly just ask folks, what, you know, what do you need from your leaders that you're not currently getting? Uh, as well as what have your leaders done that have been particularly helpful or effective for you and, and your team? And then to be able to collate those things and then share it with our leaders of here's what people say they need from you. And here are the things that they have found that some leaders have done that were particularly helpful and that you might want to review that list and see if there are, uh, you know, uh, behaviors there that you haven't yet adopted. And I think, you know, some of the things are even just surprising, right? People would say, my leader did this really well the first several weeks, but I haven't heard it lately. And I need to hear it again, uh, that the, some of these messages that leaders were you're just able to say, well, that's easy. I just didn't realize. I thought we had sent that message and communicated it. So I think that there are so many elements um, that are about effective leadership, um, giving the people doing the work more um, input into the decisions and being able to incorporate those insights, that expertise, that perspective more rapidly. You know, most of these things in a sense are free. They cost nothing and they have, um, you know, very massive impact. And so I think that one thing that no organization should say, we wish we could do something in this space, but you know, we're a safety net hospital, we have no margin. That's a cop out because there is so much that we can do. 
Um, probably the most important things we can do um, are about listening, give people voice and input, empowering them, giving them some flexibility um, and demonstrating more effective leadership. But I think to your other point, some things do cost money and there, uh, you know, we just have to um, identify what is going to be the highest impact of the options that we have, right? Um, things like providing childcare, astronomically expensive, um, providing meals that you can pick up on your way out of the hospital to take home for your family so you don't have to cook um, as a way to ease some of the work-life integration as your work hours increased much less costly, sometimes economies of scale. Uh, you know, we had times where our food service folks in our cafeteria um, would have been out of work or unemployed and we knew we would need them longer term. And so we were able to harness some of that of, um, look, let's deploy some of our hospital resources there to a group we need to maintain. And then how do we use the, the output there to, to create some meals for pickup or whatever it would be that would address a different issue. And so um, I do think there is an element where of the long list of other things that would be good to do, um, thinking about which will be highest impact and then which are the ones we can afford. And it, it's sort of uh, coming back, Steve has a really nice um, image that's sort of one of the standard of, you know, sort of impact on the y-axis and feasibility on the x-axis. In an ideal world, we want things in that upper right quadrant of okay. high impact, high feasibility. But, you know, sometimes there's things in the, um, the lower right quadrant, right, where they're very feasible, but they're mild or modest impact, but they're what we can do now. And a, a, a group of you know, five or six things in that quadrant that are feasible and within the realm of what we can afford can make a difference. And if nothing else, transmit that we care, we see the need, we're trying to do all we can, even though it's not everything we wish we did. You mentioned listening a couple of times, and I love that. I love that. Um, it, I, I feel that whenever I am heard from the top, that I, I'm more satisfied with the place that I'm at. Um, but another theme that I kind of heard you resonate through what you were talking about was empowerment and how as you as the chief wellness officer was empowering the, the physician leaders at Stanford during this time who were then subsequently empowering the people beneath them and beneath them. And it's kind of like this trickle down effect starting with you guys. And that seems like a really powerful quality to build into your wellness initiatives. And I'm wondering besides empowerment and listening, what else makes a really good wellness initiative, not just in COVID times, but just in a, because wellness is kind of becoming one of those words that's, that's very, it feels almost hollow and that sometimes people do things that fall flat. And I'm wondering how do we do things that have that, that maximal impact with the high feasibility? It's a great question. And I think you're right that um, when organizational wellness efforts um, are either lip service or um, manifest as, you know, yoga, granola, and, you know, <laughs> learn how to practice mindfulness as the extent of them, um, they will fall flat and they will heighten cynicism. And again, I like granola. There's nothing wrong with granola. There's nothing <laughs> wrong with yoga. There's nothing wrong with mindfulness. It's just, 
that again, uh, healthcare workers appropriately look and say, those are not the problem, right? We, mm-hmm. we published last summer, you know, a large national study showing you know, physicians have higher resilience than the population. And that even the most resilient physicians with the highest possible resilience score have high levels of burnout. And so again, we won't resilience our way out of this as a colleague, uh, as Stu Slavin likes to say. Um, and so I think, you know, that's where we need to, I think, engage our people on the conversation of, you know, maybe we're providing a menu of things to help you take good care of yourself and make work-life integration and time for some of these things easier. But we really want to, fo- our efforts are focused on improving the work environment for you. And I think, you know, in some ways, if you just ask that question of what are, when we look at the studies of what are the characteristics of successful uh, wellness efforts, I do think they come back to what you said, they start with listening. And so we often need an assessment. Sometimes the assessments give us a better sense of maybe a handful of different drivers and understanding the profile of different units and which units in which it's an efficiency issue and when it's a flexibility issue and when it's a work-life integration issue or a sense of values misalignment of what we care about and why we show up for work don't seem to align with what you're prioritizing as an organization. I mean, understanding that profile can help maybe start a more um, actionable conversation. But you know, even there, Again, it's sort of asking the, the physicians, right? Uh, you know, these are folks who are highly skilled, knowledgeable, trained to be problem solvers. They see the issues, they have ideas. And so I think that, you know, usually it's letting them sort of generate the list, prioritize the list as a group. Um, Cause otherwise we have 50 ideas, right? We got to bring everybody and say, these are all good ideas, but if we have to start with two or three, which would be the top and let the group build consensus and, and then let th- their ideas help design the solution. And what we find is that that process alone is probably uh, has, you know, a medicinal component because again, it transmits of we care, we're listening. We want to get your ideas, help us prioritize them and let's w- work with us to help put them into effect. And even if the, it didn't have the intended outcome, those other elements build trust and build a sense that this didn't quite work how we hope, but we can iterate it or we can try something else and starts helping uh, you know, people have a sense of co-ownership of their work environment. And we're gonna create a better practice environment tomorrow than we have today. And that it, you're empowering us to help lead the organization or lead the group there. So I think that those qualities of the group gets to give their perspective, they get to prioritize. Their ideas are the ones that we help develop and their ideas are the ones we pilot and that leaders are empowering those things to happen. I think those are some of the key qualities, you know, more so than than the specific tactics. And I think that notion of focusing on the system and environment, not bringing resilient strategies. I, I think the other one that, you know, you, it's sort of been a, this running thread, the leadership element is so important mm-hmm. um, of, of the behaviors of our leaders are just so critical. So what would you say to then a medical leader who's struggling to see the, you know, the reason behind implementing new strategies and doesn't think that 
they can fit these things in and is making maybe excuses for not including strategies like this. Yeah. I, you know, I think it's, um, as a leader, you will, uh, you know, pay the piper one way or another, so to speak. Right. So that, um, if you don't invest time in, um, showing that you care about those team members and their needs and their concerns, and you're not listening to those. And if you don't demonstrate that beyond the collective, you actually care about each of those individuals on your team and what their priorities are and their goals and their aspirations and how they want to develop. Um, and you're not investing in that. And then working with them, think about how might we harness that passion you have or that interest to help us accomplish our goal. And if you're not building the relationships between the team and you're not helping that team come to a sense of alignment of how what we do, uh, how is it helping us move toward the broader um, you know, aspirations we have in the medical center to provide the greatest possible care to the patients we serve and to the communities we practice in? Uh, if, if we're not attending to those things, um, we're not going to have an engaged group of physicians who are bringing their best and helping the organization achieve its goals. Um, we'll have misalignment. We'll have people who feel that the organization doesn't care about them. We will have higher turnover. We will have people try to do the minimum. And even, you know, we'll bring things like, okay, we have a new quality improvement initiative and we want you to come help us think about how we're going to improve quality in the surgical department uh, and no one's going to show up for the meeting, right? Because they don't actually feel that it's authentic. It's not sincere. This organization is all about lip service and I'm committed to being a great physician. I'm not committed to this organization. And so I think if we don't invest time in those things as leaders, the likelihood we're going to uh, be effective um, in helping our team accomplish its mission Um is, is low. Um, you know, there's a quote I, I like, I, I've seen it attributed to the U.S. Army that it's just, you know, the, the purpose of the leader is to accomplish the mission and attend to the welfare of the soldiers. And that's it. Nothing more. And one is dependent on the other. And if you're not attending to the welfare of the soldiers, you can't accomplish the mission. Um, and so I think we have to view those two things as inseparable. And obviously each of our organizations, our divisions, our departments, our specialties, um, subtly different missions, but hopefully they all have a mission and hopefully it's one that lives up to what our altruistic goals of why we became physicians and are in healthcare. Hopefully those align with the purpose and value set mission of our groups and, uh, and we have to tend to the welfare of our of our clinical teams to, to achieve that mission. I think that's a fantastic thought to end on. And hearing that as one of the soldiers makes me happy that there are people at the top thinking about us. And um, so Dr. Sandoval, thank you so much for your time. We like to end our interviews with a standardized question. And that is what is what are two or three books that you would recommend to burgeoning medical leaders? Yeah. Um, Great question. Um, I'll maybe give a couple in different areas. I, mm -hmm. I think um, 
you know, in a leadership domain, I think uh, Edgar Schein's Humble Inquiry is one of the books that's always challenged me the most. Uh, and um, if you are reading it with the intent of application, I think is a really slow read because it's it's a challenging one. You know, Ed has been the sort of world's expert on organizational culture for uh, several decades. Um, uh, now emeritus from MIT, um, but that's a provocative read as a leader. I, I think also in a leader mindset, um, you know, the good book Good to Great is one that was very eye-opening to me as a physician of sort of just a different way of thinking about how to, you know, really bring together a team of people in a way to take something. I think most of us work for good organizations or in good divisions or good departments. We certainly work with good people. Um, but how do we bring those groups together to really do something more transformative than we could have ever thought? Um, so those are, are two. I think a, a book that a, a friend and, and a dear colleague, uh, Dave Logan, who was a, a business school faculty member at USC, um, wrote a decade ago called Tribal Leadership. Um, that is one that of the different leadership books I've read, when you read it and he talks about these different places, teams function, these sort of five levels. I think reading that, I, I, I have not read a book that captures um, how I think most medis, medical teams function and they function at what's called level three out of five. And uh, I, that one, I think for me has been a very provocative one to sort of diagnose the level of your team and then what things you need to do to elevate it. So those are at least a few. I, I think, you know, Steve and I tried to put the one together. If you're really just trying to think about how do we develop a strategy to try to change the culture of our healthcare organizations to advance professional fulfillment, purpose, and, and, uh, and the well-being of the clinicians so they serve their communities better. That was sort of the intent of the book we put together as hopefully a playbook for that. But uh, yeah, I guess a few ideas there. Oh, those are great. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. It was such an honor to interview you, and we really appreciate having you on the show. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks, Peter. You guys have a great rest of the day. Thank you. Thank you, you too. Bye-bye.